Welcome to episode number 26 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And this will be our second, I guess, mailbag episode, questions and answers from the listeners. We put this out from the Circles Off Twitter account earlier this week, looking for any questions that anyone wanted discussed on the pod this week. And we got a bunch of them, so we've organized them. We'll go through them. Uh, but let me bring in Johnny here. Johnny, uh, I haven't seen you in a bit as I've been away for travel. How have things been this last week? All good, Rob. Uh, holding down the fort in the bet stamp office. Uh, and, you know, good couple weeks of football and uh, enjoying the grind of being back in the football season. Uh, it's only a couple more weeks now, I guess, until, uh, you know, you have the NHL and the NBA coming back. But boy, is this a good time for sports. It's The weather starts to change here in Canada. It's a little more chilly and the sports just keep on riding. So it's the best time of the year. We're, we're fired up. Yeah. I mean, it's great to hear that you're enjoying the sports as much as I am right now. But most importantly, I need to know who's on top of the ping pong rankings at the office right now. Are you still in the number one spot? And it's it's just painful that I have to now say this on the day we're recording the podcast. Julian passed me yesterday. He got he got the double win. For anyone listening, we have uh, the office rankings and ping pong, and uh, you get one challenge per day. Standard, you know, you can't be getting unlimited challenges, but you can challenge a guy above you in the ladder. Um, and if you beat him, then you know he could technically challenge you back if he hasn't used his challenge for the day. Um, and then you know, so essentially, if you want to pass someone in the top spot, you got to beat them back to back. Uh, and that happened yesterday, unfortunately, but uh, I'm going to come back and, you know, hopefully we haven't played today yet. So I do have my one challenge remaining for the day and uh, we'll have to get, I'll have to get back in the top spot. It's embarrassing now I'll have to say it on the podcast. But by the time this pod is out, you might be atop the list again. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely difficult to beat twice in a row. So I'm actually quite surprised. Uh, but I mean, it's the beauty of ping pong, man. These short matches, anything can happen. The variance is through the roof, you know? <laughs> it's it's awesome. Um, okay, so I took down all the questions from um, from Twitter, and essentially what I've done is categorized them in a few different categories. So a lot of questions came in about you know personal things that uh, either Rob or I would do. How would we approach certain situations? So we'll get we'll get through those quick because I think those could be very interesting. Um, we've got a bunch of mathematics based questions. So, you know, talking about specific scenarios, closing line value, how to calculate different things, which we'll get into. Um, and then lastly, we had a few, you know, unique questions uh, specific to the NFL, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into as uh, more timely type stuff as well. So the first question to start it off, Rob, um, what do you guys consider as your light bulb moment? So the moment that helped you move past the stage of being a casual better uh, and get to where you are now. So I'll let Rob answer that one first. I mean, for me, it was, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I had like this light bulb moment where I just like kind of graduated into a, a professional, but at some point I started making more off of betting sports than I was making in my day job. And that became like kind of a, a trigger for me saying, what are you still doing working a nine to five job that you dislike? Why not, you know, go pivot and try to make this a profession. So like that is sort of my light bulb moment. I, I always did this as a hobby. Uh, I played DFS as a hobby. It was something I was very passionate about. And then it just grew to a point where it was no longer a hobby. So uh, I think for me that the trigger or the light bulb moment was monetary 
Um, I mean, I wish I had a better answer, but really that's just the reality of, of what it was in, in my own personal life, Johnny. Fair enough. I think my light bulb moment came when I was experimenting with open, opening up multiple different sites. And at first I did so because, you know, you get an advertisement and it says, open this up, $200 bonus. And at the time, you know, I'm betting 20, 50 bucks. I'm like, well, yeah, I could, I'd love a $200 bonus. So I opened it up and then you start comparing the lines between that and the site you're currently using and you see all kinds of discrepancies. So my light bulb moment of when I realized that I could actually do this at a higher level is actually when I made, when I opened up a second site. Cause from there it just took off like, Oh, well, what else is there? Let me get a third, fourth, fifth, 10th, 20th out where I can compare numbers and things like that. And then ultimately the second light bulb moment when I knew this was kind of legit was when I had a few of the recreational books, you know, limit my action. And, you know, you kind of get a, a thing saying, Hey, uh, based on your playing style, your limits have now been cut. And then you look and your max bets $5. So you're all shocked. Like how, what, how did this happen? Like, what, what do I do? And you, you contact customer support, get a guy on the phone. And he says like, listen, the, the way you're playing right now, like you're hitting stuff that it's, it's going to win long-term and we don't want to book your action. And I was like, holy shit. Like, so it is legit. I'm not just getting lucky. And that those were, I guess, two light bulb moments. And for anyone who doesn't have multiple books, what are you doing? Open up more because that's how you're going to win. So yeah, that's, that is how it came to fruition for me. Yeah. I think, um, in, in your situation, um, like those are really good examples of, of really understanding that you have an edge and you have something there. I think in my personal experience, like when I actually pursued full-time betting, I probably didn't even really have that large of an edge. It was just easier to beat sports at that time than it is now. Um, and I was still very like raw and, um, like not inexperienced in the sense that I probably at that time thought that I knew everything. And when in reality, I would look back on myself even five years ago and kind of cringe in, in some capacity at some of the things that I said. So, um, it, it, for me, like it was maybe like a false sense of security and that I was winning a ton of money at, at a certain period of time and said, I should just do be doing more of this. Um, and I never really had like those specific moments where, um, it, it was like proof that I, that I had some sort of edge. Like by the time I was getting accounts limited, I was already fairly confident that what I was doing was going to win and, and things of that nature. So, um, I guess just different experiences for me and you, Johnny. I see. Uh, okay. Next question here. So, uh, this one's an interesting one. Have either of you taken a closer look at the other person's model or strategy or approach? If so, what were some of the key takeaways, surprises, or, or disagreements that might have uh, stood out? So I think I'll answer this one because I know Rob isn't too interested in the stuff that um, that I'm betting right now uh, in the sense that it's more of a grind and, and a lot more, uh, you know, difficult, like not difficult in terms of winning, but difficult in terms of management. Um, so I, I guess, Rob, would you say that's correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. We've We've kind of had this conversation before. Like I think to each their own, however you beat sports or however you want to bet sports, that's a, a personal opinion. But I would definitely say that um, seeing you on a daily basis, um, your your grind is can sometimes be a, a lot more than what I'm willing to put in. <laughs> yeah, Rob has straight up told me like, 
yeah, you're going to win, but like you're grinding hard. And I'm like, yeah, it is what it is. I, I don't mind it. I actually like it. Um, but, uh, so I, I'll, I'll answer that in terms of Rob's stuff. So I, I've taken, you know, listen, I don't, I don't know like the ins and outs of what goes into Rob's model for, you know, hockey or things like that. What I will say is once I started talking to Rob more about the modeling, I really actually learned how much goes into modeling a sport. I had talked to a bunch of people before. We're like, yeah, I do this and this and this. And I'd ask a question and I'll be like, are you factoring in this? And I'm like, no, that's not too important. I don't factor it in. You know, I did a little bit of analysis on this and I determined it wasn't that important. So I don't factor it in. When I now talk to like a guy like Rob or someone, people who are modeling the major market sports, um, I really learned that this guy knows everything. Like I do not have a chance in hell at, at beating him if, my model is just, you know, built up in in a week, which a lot of people make the big, big, big misconception of thinking that I'm going to build this baseball model and I'm going to do a sim game and I'm going to factor in this and this and that's going to be enough to beat the market. When the reality is the stuff that's going into people's models is so, so much more uh, than just the, the bare, the bare necessity. Um, and at the end of the day, one thing that people don't necessarily understand as well is you are not actually trying to beat the sports book when you're originating a major market sport. You're trying to beat other originators who are playing into the market in a heavy capacity. So for example, if better A is betting um, major league baseball and he wants to get down half a million or a million per game, then I'm not actually playing against a sports book. I'm playing against that better because that better is where the liquidity is going to be coming from. So I don't know if that's a, a good long-winded answer of explaining that, but uh, you know, definitely I would say the biggest thing I've learned from you know talking to Rob about his process is actually how much go, that actually goes into it and how hard it is to compete with that, um, you know, from a starting stage. Would you agree, Rob? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Is that a lot of people are always talking about you know the having to beat the book and not understanding that the book is shaping their odds based off of other betters in the market and the information that they have available to them. So um, I guess like it's funny because I talk about what you do as being a, a large grind on a day-to-day -day basis, but I mean, I sort of had the same grind in, in the sense of constantly maintaining models, making sure I'm using the, mo the most you know, recent data that's available or the best data that's available, experimenting with new things. Like we're in hockey off season right now and I'm you know, I'm pretty swamped on a day-to-day -day basis with going through my NHL model to make sure everything's prepped for the season. So I guess it's a different kind of grind and probably just more catered to who uh, I am as a person and, and things that interest me in general. So, uh, I mean, my, my biggest takeaway from seeing Johnny work in real time is like, wow, they, there's a real dedication to this craft. Um, I, I mean, I, I sometimes um, mock it. I don't want to say I mock it a bit. That's not the right word, but like I maybe diminish it a little bit in terms of, um, you know, prop betting props or other smaller markets or whatever. But I think that there's like a, a real dedication to that craft that I see from Johnny specifically. Um, the takeaway is I don't necessarily want to do that myself. Um, but it's, um, it's, there's, there's more than, I, I, I guess I can't say there's more than one way to skin a cat anymore or else PETA is going to be on my ass, but, um, there really is. And, uh, I think that's the takeaway. Okay. Next question here. Um, so do either of you blindly follow anyone else for sports? You don't handicap yourself. If so, who, which 
I mean, I don't think we're going to answer. And how big of a play compared to your usual bet? So I'll let you kick that one off, Rob. Yeah. So me, absolutely. Like if somebody has the capacity to move the market um, by putting out a play, then I think that they should generally be respected. And if you can get out ahead of that number and bet the same number that that person is going out on, I think that's probably just in general, a good thing to do in the long run. Worst case scenario, you can R back the other way, look for a middle in some capacity. Um, so the answer for me is yes. If I get wind that somebody is going to bet something and I know that it's going to move, I am very likely going to bet that myself, even if I don't agree with it, because there's a lot of advantages you have of getting that number early on the best number on one side, whether that's, you know, giving it to someone else at, uh, a fairly more expensive price buying back the other way um it's an inherent advantage so i absolutely will do that um and then there's also cases where i'll blindly follow someone um in a sport where they just have a winning track record and it's like like if i want to make a ufc event more interesting i would rather not throw my own darts on a ufc event because i don't follow the sport anymore i don't handicap it so i will reach out to my friends who are, are winning MMA betters and see what they like in the fights. And absolutely, I think that's um, still positive expected value on my end and a way to, to get a sweat as well. Yeah, I agree with Rob. I would absolutely blindly tail somebody. Um, the, the thing that I look at is not even so much the winning track record. It's the way the market is going to move when they say they're going to hit it or you know the process in which they're what they're doing with that play basically. So if you tell me I'm going to tail someone on NFL and they're like, yeah, I've won six seasons in a row. I don't really care about that. To be honest, the thing I care about is what happens when they move the line. Uh, what happens when they send me a bet? Like, is it going to, is it going to get closing line value immediately after? Are they going to go out, hit the screen everywhere? And then as a result, I now am left with a positive expected value position. Like Rob mentioned that you can are about of, or can choose to hold. Um, also, in terms of like closing line value, this is more for the, you know, more educated people who are watching here. Like, obviously, not everything has to get closing line value, but if it doesn't, then there better be like a damn good reason that it didn't, right? So it better be almost on purpose that it didn't get closing line value. So when I'm looking at, you know, moving something else or like blindly tailing someone, then 100% what I'm doing is looking at the process behind that bet and looking at how the market reacts to that or doesn't react to that based on whatever reason. So to reiterate, I'm not tailing someone based on results. Um, I'm tailing someone based on process. Makes sense. I mean, um, I think I think we, we're both in full agreement on that one. Okay. Um, so last one for Rob and I, some more for uh, Ontario, Canada sports bettors. What is your experience or sorry? Uh, yeah, I guess the question is where a little weird. What has the experience been so far with the province run uh, sports book? So in this case, it's ProLine Plus is the sports book in Ontario. And for anyone who's not from Ontario, uh, Canada just uh, regulated sports betting on a national or a federal uh, stage. And at this point, there is provincial run sports books in Ontario, Quebec and out west. Um, and there's obviously, I think, a hope that the regular sports books like the likes of DraftKings and, and the big guns will come to Canada shortly. Uh, but in the meantime, we do have a state run sports book. So Rob, uh, have you had any experience using that? Yeah, I've used ProLine Plus. Um, 
I will say that I, I guess the trading is a little bit better than I thought it would be in general. Um, we, we've had uh, obviously ProLine in, in Ontario, we've had for several years, but it was never single game wagering. You always had to parlay and you'd always be able to get some pretty off market numbers um, and put those into a parlay, which was even enough to overcome the VIG in some cases, or in a lot of cases, um, I haven't seen that many standouts in terms of like off market prices, just in general, typically, since we're in Ontario, we'll get good prices get betting against the Blue Jays, and probably the Maple Leafs when hockey starts and the Raptors when basketball starts. But aside from that, I think they've done a fairly good job with their prices not to get burned by sharper betters. I think the product is definitely in its infancy right now. And naturally, I think there was a, a bit of a rush to market to capitalize on uh, the NFL being in season and trying to make as much money during the NFL season. Because of that, I think the product uh, suffered a little bit and it's a little bit buggy and glitchy at times. And the, the layout and UX and UI can certainly use some work. But I think for a first go at it, uh, I would say I'm pleasantly surprised at at what the product has been so far. Yeah, I would agree, uh, you know, almost universally with that statement. I think like the off-market numbers piece is very hard. It's much harder to find given that they take a higher hold. So they're, they're taking a lot of juice on the sports book. And again, it's government run. Like it's it's probably how it's, it's going to be. They're not going to change that. Um, but in terms of the actual product, like it's going to be very, very hard for them to compete with like, uh, you know, the regulated books like Bet365 or people that have like an ironed out software. Like the thing logs you out all the time. If you're on mobile, it's it's terrible experience. If you're on web, it's a little better, but there's a little nuances where just that you could tell that the people designing it didn't really necessarily like, you know, go through the whole sports betting process. Like I can give you one one example, which I think is pretty funny is, when you go to the NFL menu, uh, if you on the web, if you click NFL, it only displays the money line prices. So it shows like NFL and it'll only be money line. And then the only way to see the spreads is if you click into the game. So there's no view on the whole site where you can just see the NFL team and the spread and then just go down the, the board and get the rundown. It doesn't exist, which is in my opinion, like that's the most pivotal screen for a recreational better to, to be seeing. So I think small things like that, that they'll eventually iron out. Hopefully someone listening to this podcast will fix that. I think that's uh you know, little things like that and they can vastly improve, but it probably will be tough to compete with DraftKings, even on the bonus fronts. Cause they haven't really necessarily offered um, hefty bonuses or anything like that. So we'll see what comes, what comes it, but yeah, we're happy to have an additional out. But, but also like uh, think about uh, the, the amount of, improvements that sites like DraftKings, FanDuel have made over the last couple of years since regulation started in the US as well, right? Like I remember first experimenting with those products at first and a lot of similar issues where um, you'd have some layout questions that you, you look at something and be like, why did they manage to do this? And I think it's naturally gravitated towards a more traditional uh, layout on both mobile and web. And I'm speaking uh, about pretty much all the operators in the US regulated market right now. But I think certainly if we were to go back a couple years um, and compare the products from them to now, they're then to now, I should say, there's been a lot of incremental improvements that have been made. I'm not necessarily saying that any of these products are perfect by any stretch of the imagination because they're not. Uh, but I think for a first kick at the can, yes, there are a lot of annoying things. There are a lot of things that don't make sense, but um, it's a decent start. I mean, they, they, there's definitely a, a good platform here that they can improve upon. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so a couple more in terms of the this category. Um, next would be if you could use any piece of advice or skill to gain piece of knowledge to tell your 24-year-old self, Rob, what would it be? Um, we've talked about this on the podcast previously, but I would definitely tell my 24-year-old self to be more open-minded. Um, I was generally much more closed-minded back then. I felt like I had things all figured out. Uh, and, and, you know, mentioning it off the top of this pod as well, like I, I'm not joking when I say sometimes I'll listen to something I said five years ago and five years is not a big amount of time, but I, I will cringe at something I said five years ago. Um, and to think about where I was at 10 years ago or even more than that, um, I was very rooted and set in my ways of like, this is how you're going to win. This is what you should be doing. Um, and kind of dismissing a lot of valuable information around me. So I think there's an open-mindedness aspect of it and just being willing to absorb as much information as possible. Some of it is going to be garbage. Some of it's going to be very good. It'll be on you to determine um, which information to use or you know which processes to use. Uh, but I think that in this space, uh, people get very defensive, closed-minded, and I, I think you need to be the complete opposite of that. Yeah. I think for me, the answer would be um, just to be like a little more, uh, a little less cautious with uh, risk taking. So like at 24 years old, depend again, it depends on your stage in life and like, you know, what you have and the background you came up with and, you know, if you have education or X, Y, Z, but all in like got to be way more risky at that age. And even even a little bit after that, you know, even up until your thirties or till you're 35, like there's so much, um, so much, I don't know. And again, like, I don't know if I'm going to even have the same advice in five years or in three years. Uh, but if I like right now today could just go back and tell myself something at 24, I, I would just say like, you know, take more risks. I was working a corporate job at that time, like quit that job. You don't need that. Like f focus on something else with higher upside. That would be my advice right now. But at the end of the day, like I'll probably listen back to this podcast in five years and have like way different advice. So it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it changes. I, I think like just thinking back to myself at that age as well, I would, um, I, I, I think your, your piece of advice rings true to me. I was very risk averse for a long period of my life where if I look back on it now, I would say, what was I thinking type of thing. Now, obviously it's easy to say that because I have developed practices that I, I'm fairly confident are, are going to win in the long run and, and things of that nature. And maybe it's not the same for everyone else, but um, yeah, I think my conservative approach cost me a lot of EV in life. Okay. And then last question on this topic is uh, how would you approach the game show deal or no deal? So I'll answer that one first because I don't think it's a very interesting answer, but it just shows like the person I am, I guess. Uh, I'd probably be the most boring contestant in that show because at the end of the day, that show is is literally just nothing. You don't have to actually pick a, a numbered case. Like it, it means nothing. Like if they told me like pick a case, I'd be like, okay, case one. I'd be like, now select five. I'd be like two, three, four, five, six. They'd open them all up. And the second I got uh, an offer that was like higher than my expected value, which which comes up frequently in the show, um, I'd likely accept that In unless it was a case where I felt like I wanted to gamble. Then it was, you know, roughly even EV, lower amounts. I was comfortable gambling. Maybe I take I take the shot. But uh, but yeah, I wouldn't be too um, 
you know, interesting to watch. Like, I, I don't really believe in like, ah, get my lucky number 17 and then, oh, let me go 24, 36. Like they, they're, you know, it's all kind of just out there. I'd probably go case one, then two to six and then so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in the exact same boat. I'd still pick numbers because it, it doesn't make a difference. And I, uh, like kind of the fun of picking numbers, but yeah, for me, it's entirely a show built off of understanding expected value. To me, the amounts of money that you're making in that show are not life-changing enough where, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to sweat things too much. Uh, I think if I was to get a plus EV offer early, depending on the amount of, of EV I'm getting, I would consider taking it. If not, like once you get later on in that show where there's, you know, five, six briefcases left or sometimes even less, you're almost never going to get a good deal uh, because the amount of money at that point means a lot to all the contestants. So they're much more willing to settle for negative EV than to just go all the way to the end. Uh, whereas I would just much be much more likely to go all the way to the end in that type of situation, which is essentially gambling. But I mean, it's better than taking an offer that is... Uh, minus EV. So I, I'd pretty much approach it the exact same way as you, Johnny. I would say it would be pretty fun to just pick a case and then say, you know what? I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm going with this case. Yeah. Open it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be there, pretty cool. There's no offer you can make me right now. I mean, there is, there would be offers that they could make you, but there's no offer that they are actually going to make you on that show. Um, because the banker as, as he's referred to is just, uh, I mean, calculating the EV at every step of the way, um, especially late in the show and just giving you an offer that's not in, in your best interest to accept. So uh, I definitely would take a mathematical approach there. Now, if we're doing deal or no deal where the, you know, the the amounts are multiplied by 100 or 200 or something like that, then it's a completely different story. And we get into the same kind of hypothetical as the flipping the coin, which we've talked about over the last few weeks. But at the at the current prize pool amounts, I I would probably just, I'm probably just gambling the whole way. Yeah. So, so somebody on Twitter, by the way, uh, broke down, uh, I believe his name was Dan. He broke down the, what he called the correct answer to the billion dollar flip with a, a bunch of uh, different math behind it. And it was, it was a pretty cool read. So maybe actually we'll, we'll tweet that under the, this next episode when we release it and people can give that a read if they, uh, if they're interested in it. So onto the mathematics section, uh, a lot of math-based questions here in regards to you know closing line value, market agreement, playing back, things like that. Um, one that came up that I want to answer right off the top was um, how do you calculate alternate line values? For example, in NFL, if a team is minus three, minus 110, uh, what would their fair price be to lay three and a half, six and a half? Also, is there an actual formula for this? So uh, I'll start with more of the technical way in which you would actually calculate that. So if a team is minus three, minus 110, and you want to know what the fair price would be at minus six and a half, then essentially what you have to do is calculate what the probability is that that game lands, you know, three, four, five, or six, and then take the half probability of the three and the push there, and then take the chance of you hitting the four, five, and six. And then at that point, you can calculate what percentage um, likelihood that team is to land in the middle of that range. And then from there, uh, now you can subtract that from 
the value at the six and a half. And I mean, maybe it's a little, you know, wordy and complex for anyone listening just on audio only, but essentially what you want to do is calculate the push probability in between the two values. And then when you then do a, a sum and subtract that value, you'll be able to see what the probability you need is at six and a half versus three and a half. So in that scenario, uh, the, there is no specific formula for this because this is going to vary between sport, between, you know, team, between, uh, you know, what the spread in the game is and then what the total in the game is, usually like a lower total having, you know, less variance in the game with the higher total having higher variance in the game. So there's so many different things to, um, to go over in this that there's no standard formula uh, for this. However, I did want to give in answering this a plug to uh, our friends over at unabated.com. Uh, it's Rufus who has appeared on this podcast prior as well as uh, Captain Jack Andrews and uh, and Dan Fabrizio and they um, they launched a product we, we went over it with Rufus where you can actually calculate this based on the models built by uh, Rufus and Captain Jack. So I did do a little plugging on their site and uh, minus three minus 10 is roughly the equivalent of minus three and a half plus 109. And uh, the rough equivalent of that would also be minus six and a half at plus 153. So again, like I said, this is going to be dependent on the total in the game and so many different things. So to accurately price that, you have to really do this on your own. Um, And if you don't have necessarily like the the coding skills or the data behind that and and don't want to put in the work, then uh, it's, it's pretty awesome to just go into the unabated product and check that out and you can compare the lines uh, that way. Rob, anything to add? Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I mean, for me, it's a, I, I don't really have to worry about these calculations in general, just on a personal level, because uh, I run Monte Carlo simulations for uh, the, 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 the sports that I bet on. So for me, I, it's just like a basic query on my end, how I'm not really converting any prices at any point. I'm more so just able to look that up. Um, you know, when you're running 50,000 simulations on a game, you can see how often a team's going to win by three or how often a team's going to win by three and a half or six and a half or whatever other number. Um, so I don't really have to deal with this just in general. I think just another piece of advice for people who are just comparing half points, you could just use the pinnacle dropdown or the, or the Chris dropdown as well, which is something I got away with for a lot of time in life. Um, on those sites, you can buy and sell points and you can see alternate numbers and things of that nature. So you can use that. But I would also highly recommend unabated in general um, in the sense that it just takes a lot of the work out of the, the equation for you. I mean, you simply type in two numbers, tells you which one's the better of the prices and and that's it. You move on with your day. Um, if you're mathematically inclined, sure, go ahead, do the distributions and, and make sense. But if not, and you're just looking for a quick um, easy solution. I think that there's, a, that's a really good solution. Yeah. I, uh, I beat up on those, uh, pinnacle dropdown menus for a little while. And then ultimately they, uh, pinnacle caught on and adjusted them, uh, for the sport that I was attacking. One thing I will say, Rob, is you mentioned, you know, looking at that dropdown menu and a lot of people say, oh, no, that's not accurate. I know people who can beat that. The thing is, if you beat that, they're going to adjust it. So it is accurate up to the point until it's not, and then it becomes accurate again. So it is a good way to do it is to look at those drop downs from a more technical standpoint, by the way, to answer this question, um, how to actually calculate that. What you're going to want to do is basically look at historical data points and then say, 
this is the likelihood that this happens. And in something like NFL, there's not going to be enough historical data points. So you're going to have to do some sort of, you know, smoothed out regression in order to get your answer there. Um, and then last thing to keep in mind would be that the sports are, you know, constantly evolving. So NFL now is not the same as NFL was three years ago because, you know, you had the extra point move back and then this and holding calls and then this and this and this. So, you know, you do have to also weight it. Uh, your priors way, way, way more heavily towards the current year and last year versus like, you know, something that happened 10 or 15 years ago. If you look at NBA games, there was barely any totals above 200, um, you know, a mere 10 years ago. And now, you know, it's hard to find a total in the NBA below 200. So that, you know, is the last thing I'll mention is like, you know, weight your priors. And then also, you know, you're going to have to do some sort of regression to smooth it out because there's no way you're going to have like what the chances are that a game lands on nine because there's only a handful of games in the NFL that have ever landed on, um, you know, nine anyways. You know, it's only going to be a couple a year. So that's the reality of the question. Hope that's a good answer for you guys. Um, and we'll get into the next one, which is, do you think someone can beat the closing market odds of NFL sides and totals at pinnacle in the long run? And the person notes, I'm 145 and 103. So plus 43.3 units doing it small sample, but looking good. Rob, I'll let you answer that one. I think there's some missing information here, just in general in the question. And one of them is the timing of the wagers. Um, because beating NFL sides and totals. No, so he's, at- he's saying closing market odds. So he's saying betting betting into the closing price. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. So he's saying that at, at the end of the day, he's taking his pick against the close and he's been up 43 units this year doing so. Uh, got it. Uh, okay. I don't know if it's this year. because it, No, it's definitely not just this year because it's a sample size of 248. But yeah, in the long run, I guess forget about his own thing. I shouldn't even mention that part of the question. Okay, no, in no, the no. long run, do you think someone can beat the closing odds of Pinnacle and just keep betting into the post one second before game? And do you think they can win on NFL? Okay, this is my, my answer here is probably contrary to what uh, 99% of professionals would answer on this type of game. I don't believe markets are perfectly efficient. I do think that there are situations where there is potentially um, everyone in market kind of doing the same thing and taking a a different approach, which might provide um, weird numbers that are maybe more directionally correct, might work. Now, the reality is Pinnacle at close is taking over 100K on sides and totals um, per bet with the the ability to repop it. Um, They are extremely confident that that number is as close to the true number as possible. My feeling is that Someone can beat closing market odds. I just think that it's extremely unlikely. And I'll never say never. This is going back to being like open-minded about things. I think there's potentially people that might have data that's not being you know, used by the rest of the market makers. Potentially lines are over-adjusting because everybody wants to be on the same side as some specific market makers. But overall, yes, I think it can be done. I think it's highly improbable okay i think to answer this question fully i'm gonna you know take a step back and then say it what is in the long run mean so like in the long run in my opinion is over you know a lifetime of sample can somebody do it and my answer for that is going to be always no and 100 percent no and the reason is is that it's 
what we call like, you know, it's, it's efficient market hypothesis, meaning at any given time, the market is efficient. And people say, oh, well, the market's not efficient because when someone hits it, it moves. And that in theory is what this whole thing is all about. It's at any given time, the price is the price. And when somebody hits that price, they now have put more information into the market. And now that price has moved accordingly on that new information. And therefore, the new price is now the price. So when we're looking at the closing price for Pinnacle, um, can one person beat that closing price? Yes. For how long? A short amount of time. And the reason is because they now contribute their information into the market. And it's only a matter of time until the market adjusts on that information. So based on the efficient market hypothesis, nobody can, It's sorry, not nobody, but it's going to be extremely hard to continue to beat the market. What I will say though, is I do believe that there is somebody at all times that can beat the market at closing price, but it's going to be a different person every so often. So there will be someone that has an edge for three months. And then that person's edge will get factored into the market and someone else will come with a new edge that will then beat the market for a month. And then someone else will have a different edge. And eventually all that stuff will get factored into the market. The only way you can continually beat the market at post is if you're betting insanely small and just flying under the radar. And then at which case in that situation, um, are you really beating the close? No, because you're, you're not extracting the value out of it. So there's a lot of ways to answer this question. I will say the way I consider long run is forever. And the way I consider beating the close is popping it at the full max. And in that scenario, you cannot do that uh, in the long run. But can somebody have a small edge that's not factored into market that could last for a year and they can bet it, you know, a thousand bucks at a time? Absolutely. And I'm sure that's happened before and it'll, it'll definitely happen again. So just to play devil's advocate uh, on a couple things, I, I I mean, this question is very vague, so it's hard to say, but in this situation, I don't know necessarily that the person is betting into the market at post rather than just kind of tracking. So if that were the case, they're not really contributing their information to the sports book. Um, that's just a, a very minute, like, I guess, point that I wanted to bring up. But I do think that there are situations in these markets where the closing number just ends up being one group's number. Um, I can think about baseball probably four or five years ago where there was um, a highly prolific group that would bet baseball games that would steam 30 to 40 cents. And anytime uh, anyone tried to bring the number back, they would bet it again. So basically the closing price is whatever that group wants to make it. Um, we know that there's a prominent NFL better now that is betting on Sunday's one to two hours before game time where the sort of the same thing is going to happen where they'll blow up the market on specific games. And if someone wants to bet back on that, well, they're just going to hit it again. Um, so I think there are situations where the closing price, like I, I think as a rule of thumb, you can say that the, the closing price is the, the most accurate or like the best indicator of the true probability on the game. But I think that there are just a lot of exceptions to that rule as well that need to be accounted for. And, and I think in a lot of these cases, what we end up is a, with is a closing price on a game where um, it's just not, it, it, again, it's just indicative of what one group or one person may think that price should be rather than what the market thinks as a whole. Okay. In my opinion, that 
happens only in the short term and eventually automatically corrects based on the the free market approach. So if one guy is betting into the market and he's like, my bankroll is 100 million, I'm going to bet into this market at post. And if anyone hits it back, I'm going to keep popping it the other way. Eventually, he either has an edge, in which case he's contributing to the closing line value and it's now more efficient, or he doesn't have an edge, in which case his bankroll slowly deteriorates. He's able to only bet less based on his bankroll deteriorating and whoever's playing back, therefore winning and does have an edge, which would contribute to the closing line value, is making money and growing their bankroll, in which case they're now able to make more. It's only a matter of time until the person who does have the edge shifts on top, has the most money, and now the line is back to where it should be in terms of efficiency. So if someone comes in with more money and they don't have the, the highest edge, then over you know an X amount of sample, they will eventually lose that money to other groups that will shape the market. So all in that, what you're saying, it 100% can happen. And it has, you referenced that baseball season. It's a huge example of that, you know, us living through that. Um, but it, it only is short lived because that group is not going to have confidence and continue to repop uh, if they are losing. So just, you know, right. A sample I, of, a, of a couple games where they're winning and like, you know, even over a course of a year, it can happen. But long run, like I'm talking long run here, if we're looking at where the markets were 10 years ago, like, could you beat NFL at post 10 years ago? You would say, yeah, I could beat it at post. And then how long did that last? A year until someone else beat it at post. And then now we're at a spot where someone's beating it, but who is it? And it's going to change in six months. It's going to change another month after that and so on and so forth. And in another 10 years, the line's going to be even more efficient as just per this whole market theory. Yes. And I would agree with that. I think the key verbiage in this question is in the long run. Um, and I think that's where the kind of the argument falls apart in terms of being able to do this successfully over a long period of time. So um, from that point, I think we agree. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I'm not surprised to see somebody doing it in a small sample. And again, I think there's there's times where like someone's numbers could be directionally correct, but they're overstating their edge uh, and moving a game too far, in which case they are probably still have an edge at the number that they were betting at, but then people start to, to chase that edge and it becomes, um, you know, let's say it creates an inefficiency just in general from that. But overall, I, I guess in the long run, I, I see it as being highly improbable. Yeah, I, uh, I agree hundred percent there. Okay. So getting into another question here, uh, is all CLV the same meaning is a 2% closing line value on a team like Baltimore, KC, or Pittsburgh the same as a 2% closing line value on Houston, Oakland, or Tampa Bay money line MLB bets? So I think what he means here is, you know, the worst teams, because, wow, it's funny. If I were reading this in NFL, it'd be different. <laughs> so Baltimore, Kansas City, and Pittsburgh are you know not the best teams in the in major league baseball all pretty decent teams in the nfl um i would say answer to that is an outstanding yes now i could be wrong this is my own opinion uh the closing line value is just a percentage of how far you're you're moving and when you have a team that's a plus 220 versus a minus 220 um the market is still moving the same in terms of percentage as long as you're calculating your closing line value uh, correctly, then uh, it is the same in all situations for that sport. Um, where I'd say it might be a little bit different is it when you're looking at games with higher or lower variance. So 
closing line value like over a season long total versus like a single game or even if you know things were taking the same amount of money um anything that graded over a longer span would be less um you know like i guess harder to quantify yep i would i would agree with that i mean especially if it's the same sport right if we're talking about all all mlb money line bets i mean there it's not like bookmakers are taking you know, 10K on a Baltimore game and 100K on an Astros game. The limits are pretty much the same across the board at uh, over the course of a day. So yeah, I think it's the same thing. I think my, what might be stemming this question is the fact that we've seen teams like Baltimore, I mean, I mean he's outlining bad teams, Baltimore, KC, Pittsburgh, all at different points over the course of the year, um, take money every game and continuously lose and go on a losing streak. Um, so I think maybe the 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 thought process here is that um, people don't really understand how bad these teams are. Should we be considering that CLV the same? I do think that the market occasionally will get teams wrong, but again, over time, it will correct on those. So um, I, I would say I wouldn't treat it any different for for any specific team within the same sport. I think closing line value is closing line value in that sport. Now, if we were comparing one sport to another, then sure, we can talk about what the limits are in that sport and say, well, you're more, you know, your your CLV in the NFL is more likely to be a true indicator of your edge than your CLV in, uh, you know, KBO or something like that. But um, I think for this specific question, I would say that it's all the same. Got it. Um, someone also asked on that same note, um, saying that he plays a lot of smaller market stuff, curious on CLV in smaller markets, is the closing line still as sharp when limits are lower? So, you know, just to add on to Rob's question, obviously not the closing line is going to be way sharper on the stuff that's taking a hundred thousand. Uh, sometimes you'll see the closing line in smaller markets close, um, you know, as a full, uh, arb it, you know, even in major books like Circo will close at X amount and pinnacle will close at Y amount. That's an arbitrage opportunity with either. And the reason is they just don't have the manpower looking at those markets that are taking a hundred dollars. So no, the closing line value is not the same. What I'd say as a recommendation there is if you're looking at, you know, smaller market stuff, then you want to really trust, like if you just, if you get a, someone playing back when you hit it, then that's more something to take a look at. If you play something for a hundred dollars and it moves and then now that's the settle price, I wouldn't necessarily take that as efficient because there's sometimes where just people won't be looking at that. But if you play, uh, let's say, um, you're looking at the Academy Awards and you're playing X person to win this award and you play it seven times and it moves from minus 200 to minus 700 and then someone plays it all the way back and now it's minus 200 again, then that's more something to worry about because you got the market resistance there and your closing line came back. But if you play it from minus 200 up to minus 700 and it stays there, in theory, if this was a bigger market, you know you'd have people looking at that line. So if no one hit it, you would kind of assume, all right, people think that that's the correct line. But in smaller things like this, it could honestly be that just like the people who are, care about this and would move it back just haven't looked at it yet and are ignoring this market completely. So your closing line value in that case is essentially just, you know, random because you are the only one who hit it. I, I think that's a really good point and um, really well thought out. I, th I think resistance in these markets is key. I mean, it's not only small markets, resistance in any market is really key, but especially in these small markets. I think the example that comes to mind to me is the Mac Jones um, third overall pick where uh, 
took a bunch of money and then came all the way back down. Trey Lance ends up getting uh, picked in that spot. But yeah, overall, I think these are tricky markets because it's not the same people focusing in them, on them every day. In some cases, these markets are not posted every day. So it could be someone who just didn't check or, or something of that nature. But resistance, I think, is a uh, a very good alarm bell saying that what you're doing here is probably worth um, taking a look uh, at interest in general. Okay, up next, we got a question about uh, playing back. Uh, buying back if you're in a negative position. We actually had two people write in about this. I'll read them both real quick. Uh, is it worth it to hedge out of a play if market is going against you? Would that help the long-term profitability uh, or would the juice add up too much over time? And then the second question would be, you know, how do you approach the following? A wager is placed and you have significant CLV at the time of the wager, but then injury news comes out and the line swings the other way. And now you're negative CLV. You can't get off the bet what do you do? So I'll take that one real quick and say um, the only, and Rob and I have mentioned this before, but you shouldn't buy out when the market moves against you. If you buy out when the market moves against you, all you're doing is placing another bet into a juiced market. And now you have two negative EV bets instead of one. So the only way in which you should be buying out is if you're on a position and the market moves against you, and now you can pick up a stale price moving the other way to help get a better average price on your number or get a position that would be clo- have good closing line value in regards to the playback. In that scenario, then you absolutely should call it buy back. But in reality, you're not buying back because that's your wager. Um, I would say that's just a wager you should be placing in general. So when I'm looking at these questions, I would say if you had good close line value, or even if you didn't, and the market moved against you, um, you would not want to buy back out and you wouldn't want to do anything with it. So if you got negative CLV and that's it, just hold your position. Now, don't get overexposed and be holding a position that's way too large. But if you're just betting your standard unit size, market moves against you, you know, you still have a chance to win it. You lost an expected value. You don't want to do that in the long run, but you know, mark it on the sheet, track it in bet stamp, and that's it. And like, you know, let it ride. Don't play another negative EV position just to arb out or hedge out of a of another negative EV spot. That's my yep. answer there. Well said. I mean, this isn't like uh, Twitter handicappers here where we can buy out for free, you know, and the, or the play just gets deleted. This is real life. And in order to buy out, you're paying a second VIG. And people need to understand that you're taking what's already going to probably be a negative EV play and turn it even more into a, a, a double negative EV play just by kind of trying to chase this. And what I should point out as well is this happens a lot in sports. You'll hear like some sort of piece of news where someone's like, I have to get off this play. I don't like it anymore. They end up buying out. And then there's a piece of news that actually works in their favor after the fact where their original bet would have retained its value. And I think people are very, very quick in some cases to give up on a bet completely um, when there's things that can still work in their favor uh, after the fact as well. So don't like, yeah, sometimes you're just going to have to eat a bad play. It happens. In some cases, you're going to make a play and it's going to be significant more, significantly more EV uh, when it goes off or when it's opening tip or kickoff or whatever, because news worked in your favor. And you just kind of have to understand that in the long run, this type of stuff will balance out. So I don't, I do not buy out of plays. I think there is um, 
a, a caveat to that that Johnny mentioned. If you're extremely overexposed on something, I think that there's an argument to be made that, okay, um, like it's the exception to the rule type of thing. But even then, I would have a hard time doing it um, in my position as well. So uh, no, I mean, it's not something that I, I ever really consider. Yeah, and when we're saying stuff like, you know, you're now, you got news that negatively impacted you, that news still has to move the line, right? So a lot of people, especially with NFL, they think that a lot of news moves the line when it doesn't. I heard someone, you know, like, ah, Deontay Johnson's out and I love the Steelers. Like, damn it, I don't like it anymore. Like, he's their best receiver. At the end of the day, like, take a look. Deontay Johnson's not moving the line. He never has, he never will. And that's the reality of the NFL. So yes, you may have liked the Steelers more with Deontay Johnson in, and now you don't like him anymore. But if the line actually didn't move at all, not even a penny, then that's not negative news that went against you. The, the line is still the same. Okay. We will get on to some, what are we at here? Almost an hour. Okay, so we have time for this one. Is hitting pinnacle the night before and moving the line in your favor, then betting all of your offshore outs the most profitable way to bet without having some sort of inside information. Do you have any answer for that one, Rob? So I assume, I, I'm trying to understand this question. I assume somebody's saying hitting pinnacle to move and then betting the opposite sides is or, or what am I yes, missing correct. here? Yeah, okay. that, that's what he's saying. Yeah, so like faking the screen essentially, um, which does happen. Significantly harder to do now because of the amount of people that are paying attention to these overnight lines in general. Um, and I can say that as someone who has done this frequently in my life, uh, I'd say more than 50% of them just get blown up now to the point where the people betting the overnight markets are generally capable of understanding where there's value and where there's not. Um, that's not like a, a written in stone rule. Some, some cases you get away with it. No one's paying attention, but it's it's much more difficult to accomplish than it used to be. In reality, people would be much better off spotting the fake and just going off screen and, and betting the other side themselves rather than moving the line back because you'd be able to collect a, much, a bunch more doing that. It just doesn't play out that way in the actual world from a practical perspective makes much more sense. But um, it is definitely a profitable way of doing things. It's just much more difficult to get away with nowadays. Yeah. Plus also like just take a look at how much you're going to bet on the other side and then calculate your thing. Like I, I would say in 99.9% .9 of cases, not going to be worth it. Like you have to be betting. I don't even know what's a safe, a safe number at this point with the risk of getting blown up. Like you probably have to have all at least like 50 times bet size versus the pinnacle opener that you can come back on. That's mirroring pinnacle. If you want to even be, have a chance of making that be profitable. So what I mean by that is like, the pinnacle max is a thousand on the overnight, which is probably gonna be like twenty five hundred or two thousand. Then you got to be able to get down a hundred thousand on the other side to make that worth it. Um, after factoring in the chance of you know your fate getting blown up or you know et cetera et cetera. So I don't think it's a viable strategy nowadays anymore. Yeah, I mean okay. I, I I'm I, I don't. <laughs> this is just something I thought of in the past before. I w I'm not being accusatory in any way, and I don't mean this to come across as accusatory in general because this I'm a hundred percent does not happen. But if you're like a service like right angle sports, where you know that on release, you're going to move a market quite a bit immediately. That's the type of scenario where 
it can be extremely profitable to do something like that. And you wouldn't even have to fake the screen at all. You just have to put a number out there. Everyone would chase to bet one side and you can just collect on the other side at a much better price. Again, not accusatory. Don't think they would ever harm their reputation by doing that. But for anyone who does have market influence, that is one amazing way of accumulating great EV. You'd have to be a real scumbag though, because you're just misleading every single person that's following you. Yeah. Mike, uh, Mike Craig on our last podcast talked a lot about right angle sports for anyone who doesn't know what they are. They're a pick selling service that does have market influence. So what Rob means there is as soon as they release a pick, typically they have, uh, you know, tons of subscribers that run, hit the market and move those things into oblivion. Sometimes, uh, we're actually tracking, we're, uh, friends of Ed and, uh, who owns the service and we are tracking uh, right angle sports on Betstamp this year in the media pick. So if you guys are interested in following, um, or eventually subscribing, you can check out their record in Betstamp, 100% verified. So get into some NFL questions now. We had three that came in that I thought would be pretty cool in terms of NFL. Um, so first one, Rob, just to put you on tilt, what is your take on officiating so far in the NFL? How much do you think it has impacted the totals and, and also like anything? How, how much has it impacted betting? I think, so one thing I have to say about officiating in sports, not just the NFL in general, sometimes I do make a lot of jokes about games being fixed or rigged or whatever. They are actually jokes. I don't believe it. In a lot of cases, you'll see a game where it looks like the officials heavily influenced one side or favored one side. I think that's just general incompetence in general. I don't think that people are... Uh, officials are out there really trying to purposely screw one side or another. I think it's just like some refs are bad. They have a bad game. It affects one team more than the other. So let me just clear that up before we even start here. The NFL is funny because I think that every off season, there's like, there's gotta be a memo that goes out from the league, which is like, we're going to focus on this call this year, or we're going to do this. And last year it was, uh, I'm very confident that the league, uh, took a stance of we just don't want to see this me- th- as many offensive holding penalties so we're going to you know not call it unless it's egregious and that led to a historical decrease in offensive holding which led to a historical increase in terms of points scored in the NFL this year the holding is back up but we're seeing defensive pass interference called a lot more and we're seeing like this ineligible man downfield penalty which has existed in the NFL for forever but you'd very rarely seen called, um, seen called at an epic rate so far. And it's like really weird to me that this is what the NFL chose to focus on this year. But I think they are good predictors of what the trend is going to be for the rest of the year. So when you're looking at um, the way that the games have been called so far, I don't think we're going to get quite to the scoring that we saw last year. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I just don't think we're going to get there just because offensive holding is back up uh, close to the levels of of pre-COVID. Um, and also this ineligible man downfield is getting called quite a bit, which hurts the offense as well. But I do think that the defensive pass interference being called at the rate it has been as well is going to have some sort of impact. So uh, I think we're not going to get a perfect balance of where we were two years ago and last year uh, in terms of like meeting right in the, the, mi- the, the middle and uh, in terms of average scoring. It'll be closer to last year but just um, not as high. So this is something I monitor every single week and I have for a while. Um, and it's pretty easy to track this stuff because you're if you're watching the games, it just becomes apparent what's being called and what's not being called. Um, but 
that's kind of my take on officiating in the NFL is the trends you see early in the year tend to continue throughout the entire season, probably because there's been an emphasis placed on it by the league. Um, and just in general, the inconsistency is nothing more than just not having great officials. Um, and that's it. So <laughs> good, good answers. Uh, for anyone betting, by the way, like this stuff happens in every sport every year. So you got to just keep an eye out for it. And then eventually, like I mentioned, the market does, uh, react and adjust Rob, I got to get your rant on the, the replay, the replay officials this year. Cause that that's better than the regular officiating. So week one, um, it wasn't publicly, it wasn't like a public play that I had or anything, but I had the chargers, uh, Washington football team over the total in that game, which ended up losing, but I was paying a lot of close attention to that. And there was this one play where Justin Herbert, um, he clearly threw an incomplete pass that went out of landed in the end zone and went out of bounds. And, I'm like, you know, I'm just thinking this is an incomplete pass and they they ruled it a fumble on the field. Um, and because it's a turnover, it's going to be an automatic review, uh, but it would cost the Chargers their possession because the fumble went through the end zone. So I'm watching this review. Gene Steratore comes up on the CBS broadcast. Like, uh, absolutely, this is going to get overturned. You know, balls in his hand, comes out clear as day type of thing. And it's taking like, it's a long review and I'm trying to understand why this is such a long review. And they, they upheld the call on the field, the call on the field stands, uh, in, in which case they're making a determination that there's not enough conclusive evidence to overturn this. And I'm like, what is happening this year? Like what is, how could this possibly happen? And then like two seconds later on the broadcast, they're like, well, the, you know, the NFL replay has changed this year. And now all of the plays are going through Walt Anderson and Perry Fuel at the league office. And I'm like, what? Like, (laughs) this already has such a monumental impact on the game. And now we're doing it to like this washed up referee who like, no disrespect to Walt Anderson, but it was like another dime a dozen referee who got a million calls wrong over the course of a season. And Perry Fuel, like a former head coach in the league. And I still don't understand how they have not fixed replay in sports. Like to me, the call on the field is completely irrelevant to the play. Like we, we're watching a play and we know that there's a 99% chance that something happened. Dalvin Cook fumbled week one in overtime against the Cincinnati Bengals. Guy was rolling around on his ass before the ball got stripped out from him. But because we don't have a conclusive view of the entire ball, the, the play on the field stands. And it's like, what are we doing here? Like everyone in the world knows knows the, what the calls in these plays should have been, yet we can't overturn it. It's going to two play people in, in a replay booth who are like, Walt Anderson's a former referee. You think he wants to... to like overturn a bunch of these calls and show up the referees that he worked with for the majority of his career. Of course, he doesn't want to do this. Like this is the dumbest system. We were talking about a billion dollar company in the NFL making money hand over fist and they can't figure out how to run replay properly and never have been able to. And this is the type of stuff that infuriates me as a better. And again, in some cases, these calls will work in your favor. In some cases, they will work against you. I'll never forget I was on the Monday night football game with the the fail Mary or whatever the replacement refs where they reviewed like I, I've seen the craziest stuff happen in this league. And it's probably been 50-50 over the course of my life. But just dealing with that variance on a weekly basis will infuriate you as a better. 
And I, I, it drives me absolutely insane, Johnny. I just do not understand why they thought this was a good system and why they've just never been able to figure out replay in sports. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss, basically. You know, so my, my solution is this. The call on the field is irrelevant once you submit it to replay, as we could all agree. Whatever the call on the field was is good because, you, you know, it speeds up the game and you don't have to go to replay for every single thing. But once you've gone to replay and said, we need this reviewed, why would the call on the field have any matter in the in the thing? The call on the field, like what year are we in? These guys were from like the 80s and we didn't have good camera angles to be like, no, this guy knows better because he's on the field. Like since when does the guy on the field have a better view than the 20 HD state-of-the-art camera angles that come right into the booth and this guy can slow it down whatever speed what they should do is go to the booth don't tell him what the call in the field was he's got to not know then say hey make a call if he then says whatever this is really close you tell him okay pick one whatever you think is best goes and then in that case you don't have to worry about all they called it this on the field because for the majority of the time they walk up, like even spot, like the spot of the ball, like they'll walk up and they'll just, you know, walk crooked, place it wherever. And then that gets the deciding factor. Like that's where the ref spotted it, or that's what the ref saw on the field. The refs on the field should just be, in my opinion, for speed of game, ease of play, any easy calls. Oh, incomplete. Yeah, that's incomplete. Move along. As soon as you have to review, that guy in the booth should make every call and he shouldn't even know what to call in the field is. That's my solution. They're never going to do it, but do it. I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree. The call on the field is irrelevant at that point. It's you now are bringing it up to a booth. Like it's so dumb to me that we know that there's like less than a 1% chance that Dolvin Cook fumbled in that game, even less than a probably a half a percent chance. Yet we're sticking with that ruling because we can't conclusively prove the other way. And it's it's so incredibly stupid. But there's so many things that are incredibly stupid about the NFL. The one that gets me every time, I think we've had a laugh about this before, Johnny, as well, but is like the shank punt that goes out of bounds and then the referee running up the sideline like 20 yards trying to spot where it went out, like as if he has any friggin' clue. And and the, the fans that are on that side of the field are clearly influencing where this guy is spotting the ball as well. And it's like, do we not have like some sort of overhead view where we can just match the ball to the line? Like it's got to be, there's got to be something like chip in the ball. There's a million things we can do in this situation rather than have the referee run 20 yards up the field to figure out where this ball went out of bounds. But it's like, it's, it's hysterical, man. For anyone who, who had never watched the NFL before and they were told how much money this league makes and they watched the game and saw this, They'd be like, they're bringing out these chains to measure on the field. Like, what what is possibly happening here? We have goal line technology in all these other sports, and we can't figure out if a, if the ball made it to a line of scrimmage or or the first down marker. It's it's just it's like we're stuck in the Middle Ages here, the Stone Ages, basically with uh with how the NFL officiates these games. I know, and the, and the fact that the the first down marker is still like the actual physical chains, and they have to have just two guys moving those at all times <laughs> is even funnier. Like, yeah, you have to put like wherever the ball ball gets spotted, then they just roughly move the chains to that yard line, and then sometimes they're like 
bring out the chains. We got to measure. And those things aren't even like, they didn't even put that ball in the right spot. So what's, what does it matter if there's a chain and they're like, oh, you're two links short on the chain. It's so funny. They're, but but that, 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 tradition. that one is so infuriating because sometimes you'll get the camera view where it like shows that it's a first down by maybe like the tip of the ball, but the ref will, will hold up like one link space or the opposite way around where it's clearly not a first down and he awards the first down. It depends if he's pressing down hard enough on the ball. Like there's so many things that come into play. It really is like... It depends it's, how hard he's pulling the chain too. Cause like they get like sometimes they just, they loosely move them and then sometimes they like stretch them hard. So it's funny. Oh man. It's um, okay. Another anyways, NFL we bet, question we bet on for us here. Yep. Um, so why does home field advantage in NFL seem to be less valuable year over year? Easy one, which we will, it's easy to touch on is like travel is just more efficient this year or every other year that keeps moving forward. So, you know, you could easily get a better, cheaper jet now and better hotel and better sleep quality and teams are traveling earlier and yada, yada, yada. So that's the biggest factor. But then I'll let Rob answer if he has any others. No, for sure. I mean, we see NFL teams do all sorts of stuff that they would have never done even five years ago. Like you'll see a team stay out on the West Coast or on the East Coast for a trip rather than traveling back home and then flying back out. Uh, the times of the travels have changed. A lot of these teams actually employ uh, people that help with scheduling uh, travel for them so to not get fatigued or impacted by it so that definitely happens and then it's just common sense like a lot of the things that would have contributed to home field advantage in the past teams are looking for ways to beat them so if it was crowd noise um, that would have had an impact on the games well teams will start to practice more with crowd noise or they will say how can we use silent counts or, or signals or whatever uh, to uh, po- positively impact our team or, or like not be impacted by this matter uh, amount of crowd o- noise. So um, it's just teams getting more efficient. Like teams are, are smarter nowadays. We're more analytically driven as a uh, society and as a, as a league as a whole and teams looking for any way to gain an edge. And by gaining an edge, they're decreasing edges that other teams once had. That's, that's pretty much sums it up and it'll probably get even lower and lower as future years come. Last question before we uh, close off the podcast. We probably normally wouldn't answer this one, but it was uh, submitted by our mutual friend Claudio. Shout out, Claudio. Is Jimmy G, Jimmy Garoppolo's record as the 49ers starter so good because of his supporting cast, or are there things he does that translate to wins that don't show up in his individual stats? Rob? Well, I mean, first of all, it depends on what you define as his individual stats because Jimmy G in the within the 49ers offense has been a top five EPA per play quarterback since he went to the San Francisco 49ers. So he runs this offense very efficiently. It might not resonate in touchdown numbers uh, per se, or maybe passing yardage, but when he is called upon, he executes the offense pretty efficiently. So I would say that it depends on what you say about his individual stats. Now, I do think that coaching has an impact on offense. I mean, we're seeing it with the Carolina Panthers right now as an example where Sam Darnold was just completely clueless under Adam Gase. Now he actually has a good offensive coordinator in Joe Brady who has him rolling out a lot, a lot of play action, throwing on second down, and it's having an impact. So I do think some of what Jimmy G has accomplished in San Francisco has to be credited to Kyle Shanahan, who's an excellent game planner and an excellent game caller just in general. Um, But... Uh, I mean, 
I don't want to solely put it on on those guys. I think at the end of the day, the quarterback still has to execute in some capacity. And no, do I think Jimmy Garoppolo is an above average quarterback in the league? No, absolutely not. I don't. But in terms of running the offense that he's asked to run efficiently, I think he fits really well there and does a great job. Um, so um, that would be my my response to that. I think that the things that he does actually do show up in his individual stats. It's that you're just probably looking at the wrong stats. Yeah. Um, my opinion on this stuff is like, it's kind of the know your role kind of uh fiasco here where it's, you know, know your team's role and then know your role on that team, know what your team's going to do. And then from there you can kind of adjust your play style. And then that's when we find guys who fit well in other systems and not, um, you know, a different team. So for example, take, Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes like they're going to need to score a lot more points to win than San Fran given that the defense is is going to be significantly worse in Kansas City versus San Francisco this year so when you look at Jimmy G like what is he actually being tasked to do he's being tasked to win the game by any means necessary he doesn't he's his goal isn't hey I got to go out here and score this many points or I got to go out here and pass for this many touchdowns or this this many yards his goal is to win the game so Everything factors in there, coaching, his performance, whatever. But at the end of the day, like, I think he does do some stuff well in a sense of, you know, not turning it over as much um, or even just, you know, not like good clock management, good things like that to just help his team win in that sense. So if you're if you're comparing it versus like if he was on Kansas City, would Kansas City be in the Super Bowl? Probably not. But he's in a spot where he's on a good team, good coach team, good defense. He does enough that they, you know, should be one of the favorites out of the West. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I mean, like certain quarterbacks are better fits for certain systems. But um, yeah, I think maybe there's too much of like an emphasis uh, this day and age on focusing on the fancy stats um, like pass, like everyone plays DFS and is in, in fantasy pools and Jimmy G's not getting drafted in the top rounds of fantasy pools or whatever. So when we talk about his individual stats, no, is he ever going to light it on fire with a bunch of 300 plus yard passing games and four or five TD passing games? No, but that's not what he's being asked to do as a professional quarterback. He's being asked to help the offense score and win games by any means necessary. And I think it does show up in the 49ers success rate on offense and their EPA per play when he's under center. Well said. Panthers are working out running backs today. Bad news for Christian McCaffrey, but the Panthers are 3-0. and A lot of good football. They beat the Houston Texans yesterday night. We're recording this Friday morning, by the way. And uh, Houston had a scenario yesterday where they took a delay of game penalty to give them, quote-unquote, more room to punt. You think this is a good decision, Rob? I know you're trying to get me fired up, but this guy, David Cauley, I don't know if you saw the penalty that uh, last week that he declined to bring up fourth down instead of taking the, comp- the the penalty to redo third down. It was I don't remember the exact scenario, but it was something like it was third and 15, uh, something along those lines, and they completed a pass for 13 yards, would have been like fourth and two, but there was a penalty on the defense on the play. Rather than than taking the third down again, to go to like third and 10, he took the yardage and punted on fourth and two, which in my opinion, like is imme- it's that is the most immediately fireable offense I think I've ever seen in the NFL. If you cannot understand that, 
maybe Houston ownership says, you know, he's a good coach, good football mind. Fine. You need someone else on your sidelines that's making your decisions at this point then. Like you need some sort of person. The only acceptable excuse for that is for him to legitimately say, I messed up. I thought I like, I I messed up there. And I thought that like at this point, I I declined the penalty already. I thought it would have still been fourth down. I took the yards and now at fourth and two, I'm going to punt it. He has to just admit, I messed up the down. I didn't know what it was going to be, and I picked the wrong one, and I'm sorry. He can't say he did that on purpose because he's got to swallow his pride, and that would be no one could ever just get behind that decision. It makes no sense. The Kevin Stefanski, the Browns head coach, his reaction to them declining that penalty was absolutely hysterical, and then watching them run out the punt team. like He, he was just... He really couldn't believe what was happening, as most people watching that game probably couldn't believe what was happening either. But I that like the punting situation in the NFL, that's all the one where they they intentionally take a delay of game in order to punt so that their punter has more room to pin the other team deep. Like if you're intentionally taking a delay of game to give your punter more room, it's probably means you should go for it. Um, or if you have a kicker that's capable, attempt a field goal in that situation. Uh, which I think would have probably been the right play last night. Instead, uh, like, it just it's, there's 32. It was of bad these on jobs. every direction because also don't put your punter on there and then take the delay game. Bring your offense on. Pretend like you're going for it. Hard count. Try to draw them offside, and then you get the free first down. But they didn't even do that. They're like, we're gonna bring the punter out, and we'll just ba- you might as well. They basically just didn't didn't feel the team. They're like, we're just gonna leave our team on the sidelines. We'll just take the five yard penalty. At least bring the offense on for a hard count. Try to draw them offside. And you have a free chance. No downside. Worst case, take an off, take a, a encroachment penalty, take something like that, and then you just get backed up anyways where you wanted to be. So, I don't know. The the yeah, it's it's brutal. You can't be uh, you can't be doing that and keeping your job. If that was me. Like as soon as that happens on fourth and two, and you made the wrong call, you just got to go for it at that point. You can't punt it now. You got to swallow your. You got to like save face and go for it. I mean, the in-game management never really ceases to amaze me. Like, there's obviously some coaches that you can always count on. I, I absolutely love that Baltimore won the Monday Nighter in the manner which they did, which was going forward on that fourth down to ice the game because you know how many coaches in the league would have just kicked that ball right back to Mahomes and lost the game. Like, everyone in the world watching that game understands that Baltimore should go for it there, yet at least half of the coaches in the NFL would have punted in that situation. Even though everyone knows they should, everyone knows if Mahomes gets that ball back again, Kansas city wins the game, but you still know that half of the coaches in the league would punt in that situation. And that like, I say it all the time. There's 32 NFL head coaching jobs in the entire world. And at least half of these guys are just absolutely out to lunch when it comes to at least in-game decision-making. I'm not saying a lot of these guys are not smart football minds. That's not what I'm getting at. But in terms of making decisions in-game that improve your your team's probability to win, most of these guys are just completely incapable and they don't want to consult other people on these situations or these matters either, which makes it so so much worse. I know. And there's so many guys just like, you know, analytics guys in the community that would just take that job and, and do such a good job of it. So it's almost like you got to just have a head, like if you want a, a football mind head coach, big, strong guy, pound the rock type, uh, you know, for the team type leader, that's fine. But just also have a guy to deal with like clock management. Also have a guy to deal with um, decision-making on fourth down, when to punt, like all that stuff. And, and just, 
in general, the team will be so much better, like like Baltimore is, and like they've like a couple of teams have already done. Timeout usage late in games. That's another one. How often do you see these teams have no idea when to call timeouts? Like they'll call a timeout two seconds before the two minute warning so that the other team can oh, now just Dallas? come out and pass. Oh my God. It's McCarthy. Oh, Dallas. They had, they I, didn't even get to attempt to play. I, I need to know what, what analytics books McCarthy was reading in that year that he was off where he came back and talked about how analytically driven he was going to be because uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. He said he was lying. Didn't you hear that? I didn't. He, he came out. He came out and said, "Like he didn't actually do that." But you know, you got to say what you got to say to get the job. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> oh man, that, it's, that it's, it's, this this stuff gets me fired up so much, man. Like, oh, these teams. There's so much money on the line for these teams, and like, oh, I, I I don't get it. Man. Right, well, I never will get well, it. Well, I, I know what I'll be doing on Sunday, and I'll see you there watching the games, just like we always do. Of course, we love the NFL. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. It doesn't matter how rattled I am. I'm not missing a Sunday. Regard. They, they, it's it's honestly the worst product by far of any of the major sports. I can't stop watching it because, um, I mean, I'm invested in it. I think it's just the the like having that Sunday every week with all the games, uh, everything associated with the NFL just makes it that much more difficult to to even miss one week in the season. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, this was a uh, second mailbag episode. We'll be back with uh, hopefully a guest next week. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next week.